Hello and welcome to the BLS Report. The BLS Report is produced by the Business Law Section of the Law Council of Australia to honour our friend and mentor, the late Bob Baxt AO. I'm Pamela Hanrahan from the UNSW Business School and I'm joined by my regular co-host and fellow member of the BLS Executive, Mr John Keyes. John, of course, is a partner at Johnson, Winter and Slattery. Hello, John. Hi, Pamela. Uh, great to be here and really excited about today's podcast. Excellent. So today's topic sits at the intersection of regulation and ethics, and we have two very special guests with us for this discussion. First, Mr. Tim Bednall, a partner at King & Wood Mallisons. Tim is one of Australia's most respected commercial lawyers and has advised leading corporates and governments on some of the most complex and challenging matters of recent years. He's also published extensively in the areas of directors and executives duties. Welcome, Tim. Thank you, Pamela. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to join you today. Very good. And our international guest is Professor Jeremy Moon from the Copenhagen Business School. Professor Moon is a world-leading scholar in the field of corporate social responsibility. He's in Australia to participate in the 2022 Gourlay Ethics in Business Week. Professor, could you tell us something about the Goulet program before I move on to introduce our topic for today? Yes, thank, and thank you very much for the introduction and the invitation to join you. The Goulet Chair in uh, Ethics in Business is actually a fantastic innovation. Um, it was innovated or introduced by John and Louise Goulet and now supported by the whole wider Goulet family. And the, it consists of an endowment to Trinity College at the University of Melbourne. And it's designed to bring to Australia every year an expert in the field of business in business ethics. And I must say, I'm one of a rather august group of uh, business ethics scholars. The first one came in 2006, and we've been coming every year, of course, until the last year, uh, for a period of four to six to eight weeks. And we spend time working with students, with business leaders, with lawyers, accountants, the general public, and not only in Melbourne, but we've also travelled to Sydney and uh, Brisbane, in, in my experience at least. We're absolutely delighted to have you here. And um, I should just give a shout out to the chair of the Corporations Committee, Robert Sultan, who is on the board of the Gourlay Foundation. So thank you, Robert, for uh, your participation there. So, Professor Moon, your disciplinary background is actually in political science and your professorship at Copenhagen is in something called sustainability governance. Um, that, of course, gives you a unique perspective on how we set and enforce norms and standards for responsible behaviour by large corporations. Uh, you and I have talked a little bit about some of the big picture issues that we might chat about today, but can I invite you just to introduce us a little to a little bit of the work that you're doing at the moment? Yeah, and uh, my, my background as a political scientist is a little unusual in a business school, and briefly I can... Uh, explain this. I was a political scientist for many years, including uh, at the University of Western Australia. Uh, and I did a lot of research on public response, policy responses to problems like mass unemployment, particularly in the UK, and latterly actually for periods in Australia in the late 80s and early 90s. And I kept finding business doing strange things, um, things that I hadn't expected them to be doing at least, that they were collaborating, sometimes encouraged to collaborate with and by governments. And this obviously then got me into the way in which corporations connect with the pursuit of public policy 
and then more broadly into compliance with the law and so forth. And about 20 years ago, then I actually made the move to business schools. And my current position, Chair of Sustainability Governance, looks particularly about at this question, which is bigger than corporations, but in which corporations are pivotal. What sort of regulatory arrangements are appropriate for a more sustainable planet? So obviously that also introduces environmental questions, although my own expertise is rather more on, on the social side. So, and that explains really my broad interest in this topic, but I'm also trying to focus particularly on the role of corporations in this bigger picture. What are the most suitable arrangements for governing a more sustainable planet? So I imagine it's less about the content of the rule and rather the source and nature of the rule. Yeah, I, I guess that's also also true. And I, I, sp I suppose in, I more selectively dive into the content. So I've had a project at the moment looking at the way in which corporations contribute to making uh, the Bangladesh uh, garment industry more sustainable. It's been ravaged by very poor safety for workers, rather a lot of tragedies, building collapses and fires. So I've been, I've, there I focus rather more on the content. But yes, you're right, I have an overview of from where do rules come from and how do they interact with other lawmakers and law takers. Thank you. So I know that part of your research is concerned with private rulemaking. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think this is one of the other curious things from a political science point of view. It's been striking that rules are being made and taken, um, which are not from governments, what another colleague calls non-state market uh, regulation. And there are a number of instances of this. Um, a lot of businesses initially got together to form business associations to agree principles. Often then these developed into partnerships, often with civil society organisations, and sometimes also with international governmental organisations. And out of these, we've had, we'd had, we've had these multi-stakeholder initiatives, example concerning fisheries or forestries, and these introduce standards which are in a limited way auditable, auditable not actually, actually at a corporate level, but at a plant, usually at a plant level or a forest level. Um, so we have rules by which corporations bind each other. They're bound by non-business actors even, civil society organisations. And these have emerged and straddled a wide range of, uh, if you like, policy areas, uh, social and environmental, particularly labour conditions, labour rights, human rights. The, a number of environmental questions, I've mentioned forestry and, and uh, marine resources. Uh, Anti-corruption is, an, is another one. Corporations payments to governments. Very often these are around supply chains and very often they concern operations outside the democratic capitalist world. I think, as I say, the novelty of these is corporations are regulating each other. They're being regulated by others and they're sort of regulating very often their first tier supply chain. And in as much as they are able to do this, of course, their impact is potentially huge. Millions of workers are covered by some of these initiatives. Having said that, the coverage is theoretically vast, but in reality, I would say rather thin in that whilst these organisations and institutions stress 
participation, engagement, sharing of values, they still are quite weak on enforcement and, and even shaming. But they do try to stress value sharing. And I think another key word here is learning. When I invite these leaders from the MSIs to talk to my students, they really stress this is an opportunity to learn about what we should be doing and how we should be doing it. There is, my final comment is that despite these weaknesses, we do get selective instances of hardening of rules. Sometimes these principles and standards are even built into business contracts. So there, there is a, a, some legal purchase. Some of these initiatives are designed actually to ensure and enable the realization of public regulation. And so initiatives I've been studying in Bangladesh have actually, for, for initiated by private organizations, if you like, from the global north, have been designed precisely not to import a Western idea of what building safety should look like and how it should be achieved, but to ensure the implementation of Bangladesh rules, which otherwise weren't being effectively implemented. Having, having said that, even though there is some strengthening, I think there are difficulties, particularly from the Global South perspective, who sometimes are sceptical about the effectiveness of some of these initiatives. But nonetheless, I think the, the, these give the sense of private regulation, which corporations are involved in making, but also in taking. And occasionally they're even suspended from the organizations which they help create. So I hope that's given a, a sort of an introduction very broadly to this theme of private regulation of ethical business conduct. Thank you, Jeremy. Can I just ask a question? Does this growth of private regulation underscore or indicate that public re regulation is failing and there, there is a gap that needs to be filled by private regulation? That, uh, that's a very good question. And I would, I, I would, I would hesitate to generalise um, Certainly in cross-border transactions, there's a fairly obvious um, failure of, of public governance in that public governance isn't able, very easily able to coordinate across boundaries, except in instances like the, the European Union. But certainly for cross-border uh, purposes, I would say that this is a real a, a challenge. It's not even so much that public regulation is failing. It's simply not easily deployed. You might even say inappropriate in some instances. So I think it's these new spheres of business activity where governance is, is absent. But in other cases, I would say public regulation is failing. And I'm afraid across the apparel industry through Asia, which I've, I've had an eye on one way or another for a number of years, we often see that there is quite adequate set of rules about building safety. Um, other, but they're simply not implemented. In other cases, one might have to have anxieties about the absence of, of rules for labour rights, which I think is a, 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 an absence simply in the case of Bangladesh, I'm afraid. Thank you. H have we seen over time um, increasing regulation of the, the, the wealthy nations or within the wealthy nations push economic activity into unregulated jurisdictions, which is in effect facilitated by, by free trade? I'm not saying necessarily free trade is a bad thing, but I'm just saying, is that, is that the case? I don't think it's just deregulation that's enabled this. I think there are te technology changes, uh, recognition on the part of business of opportunities for access to raw materials, cheap, cheaper labour, um, more flexible labour, which sometimes can introduce regulatory difficulties. But uh, I, I think to some extent that might be a bit of a coincidence 
but certainly uh, some of the liberalization will have enabled this but i think it's also technological change uh, new business ambition which would be part of the story so um, in terms of the uh, private regulation what are the growing global norms and standards there's uh, there are some uh, global standards on reporting uh, for example the, the, the gri um, can you just tell us a little bit about that and the impact that that's had yeah, and, and, and this is interesting, and it, it also then connects with our next theme on on, on public regulation. This growth of non-financial reporting um, grew from the, pri- the private sector and encouraged, I would say, and helped in some cases by civil society, particularly uh, f- from uh, social accountants. But um, perhaps corporations being aware of criticisms of their activities, particularly out- outside their home countries, started developing social and environmental reports. Um, the first one I've actually come across was in India from the Tata company in the 1930s. But, but, but uh, there was a sort of more, more wholesale trend, I would say, from the early 1990s, encouraged actually by United Nations Environment Agency. And so a number of corporations decided they needed to develop so not just that, non, non-financial or social and environmental uh, re- reports. These often adhered to frameworks which were recommended by social accountants and agreed together. But then around the turn of the century, we saw a, an emergence of government ambition in this area, which, which I'll, I'll come back to in a moment. I think the, the growth of private reporting was, was quite, a, quite extraordinary. And in, in the late 90s, there was a sudden multiplication and probably very high percentage of the leading 100 corporations in most uh, democratic capitalist countries were, were issuing reports. And, and ironically, these were, well, you had great piles on my desk of, of reports, and some corporations had a report for each country, and so the pile on the desk got, got, got higher and higher. But I think then there was anxiety about, well, lack of conformity to a standard here, lack of comparability, among, even among reports from the same corporation, let alone among those from different corporations. And of course, then the sort of general anxiety that this is often about publicity and talking more about the corporation's nice philanthropic works rather than perhaps on their social and environmental impacts. And that then, I think, then ushered in a greater interest in uh, regulation by public authorities, quite often because corporations wanted it. And I was doing research uh, at the beginning of the century on reporting of gender issues in a number of corporations. And quite often, I actually was collaborating with an Australian researcher, Kate Grosser, on this. And quite often we found that corporations were saying, actually, we need a bit of help in knowing what to report. They were telling us they've got so much so much data on the employment of, uh, of women. In, in their organisations, but you know, who, who really wants it? Who's going to read it? How do we how do we deploy it? And as I say, including some some of our comments were including you know, a, a hope and an expectation that governments might come in and give guidance here. And, and standardised reporting, of course, makes it much easier for the the user, uh, despite the the tendency to it to be turned into a to a checklist. Now, um, we later on we might uh, talk about the uh, the public regulation aspect and the Danish uh, non financial reporting regulations, which are uh, comply or explain. But that's a kind of a segue to um, to the situation in Australia under the ASX Corporate Governance Council principles and recommendations 
And maybe, maybe Tim, can you give us some Australian context? Sure. Um, John, I, um, I, I find the, the rise of private regulation, um, particularly the way in which it's occurring in Australia, absolutely fascinating. Uh, I do think it's filling a gap, and I think the focus of private regulation has been on ethical conduct rather than um, uh, uh, con conduct that might be seen as illicit or unlawful. Um, uh, I think two examples serve to, to illustrate the point. Um, the first is the fact that um, encouraged by um, the findings of our Financial Services Royal Commission, the banking code of conduct or code of practice in Australia has now become embedded in retail um, banking client relationship contracts. And so a retail client of a bank can enforce the banking code of practice um, through their relationship, their contractual relationship with the bank. Um, it's, it's interesting that these codes of conduct, I think, were initially developed um, as a bit of a, uh, you know, um, uh, demonstration of, of, of social responsibility and have now become effectively uh, enforceable uh, against the banks in Australia. Um, the other thing that's really interesting is the, um, uh, the adoption um, by individual companies uh, in their uh, codes of conduct uh, of obligations to quote, do the right thing, close quote, or um, not can we, but should we, which came out of um, both the, uh, the Royal Commission and an earlier APRA investigation. Um, it's been very, very interesting to see in a current public regulatory inquiry into the affairs of the Star Casino Group in Australia, um, that the recent adoption by the Star of a new element in their code of conduct to do the right thing uh, is now being used to hold individuals at the star accountable for failing to do the right thing or allegedly failing to do the right thing. Um, and so we've seen the emergence of this internal code of conduct being used by a regulator to hold individuals to account, uh, which I just find absolutely fascinating. Um, there are lots of other things going on at the star, of course, but that particular element uh, was interesting. Um, uh, I, I, I do think um, the way in which this is developing um, is encouraging uh, a bit of a, um, a pile-on um, where there's a public perception of a failure to comply with these um, private regulatory standards uh, and a media pile-on, yep, also a political pile-on. We saw that with Westpac a couple of years ago um, where uh, you know, the Prime Minister and uh, a few other members of the Federal Cabinet were encouraging the board of Westpac to resign uh, just in response to allegations from a regulator that hadn't been tested in court. And of course, they did resign. Um, it wasn't just politicians, it was the media and it was also uh, a range of stakeholders responding to allegations of unethical conduct. Um, uh, whether or not it was unethical, of course, is another question altogether, never tested uh, uh, for those people. Um, I, I do think um, that we are going to see um, in the next edition of the ASX Corporate Governance Council principles and recommendations um, further take up of these sorts of issues. Uh, we took a step towards um, uh, uh, a, a, an increased level of uh, requirement for ethical conduct in the fourth edition that um, uh, is now effect, in effect. But I do think whenever the, the next edition is published, we will certainly see. Um, uh, sorry, I can't say certainly. I would expect to see uh, a take up of um, things like reporting standards, the TCFD uh, re reporting standards on climate related financial disclosures, and the new ISSB 
um, uh, and its standards, which are being developed very, very rapidly um, uh, following the Glasgow meeting recently. I, I just also thought that uh, we should stress um, how now investors are requesting uh, more systematic, if you like, reporting of corporate impacts. And we have this phrase now, ESG, which is banded about rather rather casually. It, it refers to environmental, social and governance matters or impacts of corporations. So I think this the, the other interesting thing now is a demand um, from the whole growing section of the investor community who want to invest into sustainable uh, corporations for, for better help, if you like, a more reliable data to guide them under these three three headings, environmental, social and governance. And I think then we're seeing, again, private and public responses on this. And I guess, Gitz, I just, sorry, I just wanted to add, <clears throat> my observation would be that uh, companies will do what their investors want them to do. And as there's a sort of a growth in the ESG lens coming through from uh, from institutional investors in particular, that's that in itself will be a, a, a strong driver for uh, uh, for change, leaving aside public reg regulation, leaving aside private regulation, all that will drive the, the need for disclosures in order for, for investors to make their decisions. And we're certainly seeing that. Yeah, thank you. So at the same time as we have this growth of private regulation of ethical, uh, ethical business conduct, we've got in parallel governments taking an interest in regulating this this behaviour. Now, you might say, of course, governments regulate corporations, and that's obviously true, not least because corporations often want their common interests regulated and there are social demands for it. But I think there's a particular focus that governments are making on addressing the very points which private regulation has been moving on, uh, public reporting, due diligence, attending to social and environmental responsibilities. So we see this in a number of ways from governments. Governments are often, for example, introducing incentives for corporations to comply with private regulatory standards, for example, on meeting an environmental standard, forestry standard, that uh, governments rather will make clear that for public procurement purposes, they will only purchase um, timber, which is Forest Stewardship Council certified would be an example. But you also get examples where governments say they will only procure um, for, 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 from corporations which meet a fair trading standard. And I've seen this in, the, in a, a couple of countries. So in a sense, uh, governments are using their, their, their uh, market power, but obviously it's, it's a regulatory move to make, change the rules of public procurement at the same time. Then, of course, governments are encouraging private regulation. So as we've seen instances of governments actually helping initiate private regulatory organisations. Uh, so in, in the United Kingdom, the Ethical Trading Initiative, which is a partnership of corporations and civil society organisations and trade unions, got, received a lot of help from the Blair government in the beginning of the century, but continues to receive support, financial support and organisational support from the continuing first coalition and later conservative governments. So, okay, these aren't strict rules, but co uh, governments are bringing their, if you like, their governance resources to bear. But also, they're beginning to tweak the rules. 
And it's very interesting that these often start rather softly, but they gradually tighten. And we've seen this uh, in a number of countries, but I think the most e exemplary is the, is the Danish case, where I think it was in about 2008, actually it was an amendment to the financial reporting uh, rules, uh, and this non-financial non, non reporting amendment was introduced. And it started off very soft. It only applied to a small number of listed corporations. And there was no specification of what should be reported. There was no specification of how the report should be put together or what it should look like. And there was even an out. It was a clever out. Comply or explain. So the challenge or the question that corporations were posed with then is, are we prepared to make a report? We'd rather not, but if we rather not, we have to explain that actually, really, we don't do socially responsible things. That, that, was, the, uh, that was the assumption. Well, over the ensuing, uh, where are we now, 10 to 14 years, the rule has been both broadened and deepened. So number one, its, its scope has been expanded to a much wider range class of companies. Secondly, there's now been increasing specification of what should be reported on, which include gender issues, climate change, human rights, and others. The, the comply or explain phrase has been removed. There's now an assumption that you do report. I will say that there is no strict auditing of the reports by government that I'm aware of. This is obviously a, a potential and uh, corporations are, if, if you like, liable still to uh, be, be, being a, a, a charged with not meeting the requirements. And there's a system of fines which would apply in the case of fina financial derogation, which would also apply to the non-financial. But of course, also, it's interesting that this, these reports now are used for social regulation of corporations by the civil society side. So in, a, in some, it started soft, corporate, and of course, it, it played on the fact that the Danish corporations, or a lot of them were very good at reporting already. And they'd been clubbing together uh, through a, a global compact chapter to think about what a report should look like. So the government was building on good practice encouraging it, giving it legal status, and tightening it gradually. I, I mean, D D Danish businesses are relatively comfortable with higher regulation, perhaps than Australian ones might be, but uh, it's, it's received some, some uh, criticism, but for the most part, this, this seems to have been adopted pretty well. There's some, a lot of mimicking. Uh, corporations often follow the leaders in terms of what a report should look like. I don't think that's necessarily a, a bad thing. It does sometimes leads to accusations of of greenwashing, and that's, I think, now for civil society to, to test. Thanks, Jeremy. <clears throat> uh, Tim, um, perhaps if you could uh, give us some insights on the Australian um, aspects of uh, public regulation. I know you've got some views. I think um, public regulation in Australia in this area has got a way to go. Um, I think that we've had a couple of false starts um, with regulatory involvement uh, in this area, um, and um, uh, I'm not sure that um, uh, our regulators, particularly in the financial sector, um, uh, have felt very comfortable having this role of ethical guardian thrust upon them. Um, and I do think that um, 
ASIC in particular, to, <laughs> to be frank, has had a disastrous experience uh, at its first time round. Um, ASIC uh, was funded to set up a corporate governance task force, um, which investigated uh, um, uh, management of non-financial risk um, and also executive employment uh, arrangements and bonuses and those sorts of things. Um, uh, it managed to uh, pro provide a very um, uh, short report uh, that uh, offered nothing new in relation to non-financial risk and never reported in relation to executive employment issues uh, other than to produce an information sheet. Uh, this after causing industry to spend literally millions and millions of dollars responding to compulsory notices in, in, in those exercises. So I think uh, I think there's got to be a bit of a rethink there. Um, I think APRA is showing the way um, and I think that um, uh, a very careful consultative process in developing um, uh, uh, new prudential standards um, uh, is, is likely to bear more fruit. Um, I think it's too early to tell uh, certainly some of them haven't, haven't even commenced yet, like CPS 511. Too early to tell where we'll go on um, regulation of non-financial risks, uh, reporting and management in Australia. And that, of course, covers this huge field, conduct, culture, climate, cyber, compliance, all the Cs. Um, uh, and, and, and I do think um, it's imperative if we're going to have public regulation in this area for the regulators to be properly qualified to actually undertake that role. Um, uh, 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 Pamela mentioned at the outset um, uh, the um, issues that uh, I've written on over a long period of time on consequences for directors. Um, uh, and I do think um, the Australian legislative construct does set a very low bar uh, to expose uh, directors, uh, accountable persons now under Bear and possibly under FAR and senior managers under uh, prudential regulation. Um, two consequences for um, failure to comply with disclosure obligations in this area and other compliance breaches. Um, uh, it's not absolutely no fault, but it's almost no fault. And there's also a very easy route um, for shareholder and other stakeholder class actions to be prosecuted uh, in this country. Yes, I think if you reflect on all of the new disclosure, non-financial disclosure that's expected of listed companies in Australia, ranging from TCFD through the modern slavery disclosure requirements, um, gender equity, and so on. We are asking of corporations and their boards um, quite extensive and meaningful disclosure, presumably not as an end in itself, but in order to empower others to take action where that which is disclosed falls short of expectations and whether that's institutional investors using their influence um, to persuade boards to go in a different direction or whether it's civil society organisations or political organisations using the private law of misleading and deceptive conduct, um, negligent misstatement and so on to um, bring proceedings in I will say, in the public interest or in, in the interests of um, stakeholders other than financiers. Uh, I think the settings in Australia do create a unique risk. I think the relationship between the essentially no-fault misleading and deceptive conduct laws and the public accountability, accountability for negligence on the part of 
directors and officers in connection with disclosure does make this quite challenging in Australia. Um, and I think if you believe, as I do, that this form of transparency is a useful way of regulating, then we don't want to have settings of liability settings, so legal settings that discourage candour and discourage that transparency. And I just wonder, Tim, have we got that balance right at the moment? Uh, I don't think we have. I think there's one very easy fix um, to get that balance right, and that is to remove civil penalties for liability for personal individuals uh, in this area, uh, for liability for negligence or for no-fault misleading and deceptive conduct. Um, uh, instead, we seem to be increasing the range of circumstances in which civil penalties are imposed, um, which uh, I think is counterproductive, parallel to your objective. I, I personally, I think penalties are only going one way, and that's you know, increasing in breadth and increasing in size, at least in, in the Australian context. Jeremy, if we are seeing corporations being intimately involved, not only in rule taking, but in rule making, what are the ethical dimensions around the way in which corporations go about that and engage with governments? Yeah, I mean, this, this, ra this raises a very in interesting question. Uh, and, and certainly I, I welcome the role of corporations in, in rulemaking and in some ways it's been going on for years anyway. Um, and of course it is an area in which civil society can be very suspicious. I think on the one side the, the interest in private regulation has, has brought very positive relationships between, between the two and we've seen ways in which some of these private regulators have nudged public regulators, and then even responded. And there's been what I sort of call a bit of a jazz relationship sometimes between the two. And I saw this particularly in rules about payments corporations make to uh, resource-rich countries and developing countries where the uh, Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative has interacted with public regulators uh, throughout the world, in, indeed. Um, and of course, we've got also private initiatives where they try to nudge and encourage guidance on corporate taxation. So that's it's more responsible. One other example on the positive side is the way in which a, a one company I follow quite closely, Nova Nordisk, a Danish pharmaceutical company, which, which sells vaccines for diabetes sufferers, but has also provided policy advocacy for the wider care of, of, of diabetes patients. And they call this, as I say, policy advocacy to try and convince us that it isn't just lobbying for their own advantage. But of course, their own advantage goes with this. But there's, as we know, a much wider area in which corporations are engaged as a matter of course, entirely privately, either with elected policymakers or, or public servants at a very senior level. And sometimes this get, gets quite absurd. And I supervised a very interesting PhD some years ago on the European car industry. And we were looking at the great claims they were making about their sustainability, lower carbon outputs and the like. And meanwhile, their lobbyists were in banging on the doors in Brussels, doors being opened. And they were able to sit down and criticise the Commission for its ambition in the creation of the carbon markets. So what do we do about this? Um, is transparency a solution here. And I know that a number of um, organize, reputable organisations have tried to investigate the transparency of lobbying. I've 
done a little bit of the research here myself, and it's, it proves to be a very difficult area. Um, some companies think that they w w that I've talked to weren't aware that they this was expected of them. Um, but I think at, at the end of the day, we, we need some reassurance about what's going on. I think we need it from both ends, actually. And in the United Kingdom at the moment, it seems to me, also demonstrates the need for accountability among the policymakers themselves, the parliamentarians and, and government leaders in this area. But so, too, we want reassurance about what the corporations are asking the governments to do. And of course, then we can compare that with the other claims that they make. So, yeah, I think this is an area where transparency may help. I mean, at the end of the day, we, we corporations will still say that they need some private conversations with policymakers and that they need to do so for, for, for reasonable reasons. Of, um, they want to privilege the co co commercial information, and that's understandable. I think that's probably regulatable, but possibly you may be the experts on what is regulatable in this area of transparency of corporate lobbying. But I think it would certainly progress here would would help if you like complete the picture of a more healthy relationship between private and public regulation. Uh, so, Tim, you've acted for the Commonwealth on a number of major um, transactions recently, and you've acted for uh, the private sector. How do you see that relationship? How do you see how do we create a healthy environment in which the perspective of the business community can come into rulemaking without coming to dominate it? Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating question. Um, I think particularly when uh, law reform in this country seems now to result only from lobbying um, from various pressure groups. Um, we have a law reform commission um, uh, whose recommendations have um, been largely ignored. We had a, uh, a corporate law reform commission called CAMAC, which um, uh, was closed down uh, after about 20 reports that were never uh, implemented. Um, and so we now have uh, law reform either at the instigation of regulators or at the instigation of corporates. Um, and I do think in Australia, um, the voice of the regulator has been very loud for a long time in law reform, particularly in relation to uh, financial services and corporations more generally. Um, we did see a couple of uh, um, uh, examples of, of corporate lobbying for law reform in Australia in the last year of uh, the last government here, um, uh, particularly in relation to continuous disclosure um, uh, litigation. Um, but that was an exception, I think, that proved the rule. Um, I do think that um, uh, we need a balance. Um, I think the fact that lobbyists um, in Australia need to be registered and uh, um, uh, can be deregistered um, is is a good thing. Uh, it's a start. I don't think it gets us to full transparency, Jeremy, um, but um, uh, it's it, it, it's a start. Um, I, I think that if if governments are going to uh, uh, um, uh, proceed with law reform based on lobbying by uh, regulators on the one hand and uh, the private sector on the other, then uh, a, a balance is called for. Um, I think that the imbalance is reflected in uh, something that John um, mentioned a minute ago, which is the just inexorable increase in um, the size and range of uh, penalties. Um, we now have a, a silly situation where um, civil penalties, civil monetary penalties for, for conduct exceeds the criminal penalty for the same conduct uh, in Australia. We've got numerous examples of that. 
um, we've got um, what is now just a ridiculous breach reporting obligation uh, where corporations have to report breaches and then um, get prosecuted when they report the breach, even if they've rectified it and remedied the, um, uh, the, the, the matter for their clients or whoever's been affected. Um, we are getting uh, regulators into a position where they are forcing divestiture of businesses based on poor financial performance. No doubt we'll see that based on poor ethical performance as well. Um, uh, we've changed our definition of dishonesty to be a no-fault objective test rather than a subjective test. Uh, all of these things, I think, go too far. Um, so I, I do think um, uh, I agree that um, uh, lobbying in this area should be transparent, um, but, but I do think there is a very clear role, particularly in Australia, for the private sector to continue to do that and to continue to participate uh, in um, the process of corporate lawmaking. Uh, thank you, Professor Jeremy Moon from Copenhagen Business School and Tim Bednall from King and Wood Mallisons for being our guests on this, the 10th edition of the BLS Report. And thank you also to uh, my co-host, Pamela Hanrahan. I'm John Keeves, and this has been the 10th episode of the BLS Report in honour of the late Bob Baxter AO, uh, produced by the Business Law Section of the Law Council of Australia in collaboration with two SER.